Hi, my name's Anita Johnson, and here's a special offer. If you donate right now to Making Contact, you will be rewarded with that warm feeling that comes with generously supporting something that's free. Hit pause and go to www.radioproject.org to get that awesome feeling right now. This week on Making Contact. This is bullying. I've seen comments from adults, not even students, adults, talking about something that they largely have no idea about. I've seen teachers that I've had, people that I've looked up to and respected, publicly denounce me. Transgender youth and adults faced a heightened state of struggle in state houses, schools, and institutions in 2016. Much of the fight was over rules and regulations about identity and gender expression. And I'm gonna go back to San Francisco and I'm gonna walk down the street and I'm gonna see a lot of boys and girls, transgender boys and girls, that are hungry, that are, that, are, that are laying in sleeping bags on the sidewalk, and I don't get it. In this edition of Making Contact, we look at a few examples of the struggles and victories over the regulation of gender identity and expression in the U.S. Social safety nets are set up to provide for the most vulnerable populations. They may be seniors on limited incomes, long-term unemployed or underemployed, in a troubled relationship, a former inmate, or a young person on their own for the first time, any of whom may also be transgender. Reporter Larry Buell explored how social service providers in San Francisco and Los Angeles meet the needs of transgender clients, and he found that some can be more welcoming than others. So this kind of changes from morning to afternoon. It's way more active in the morning because the computers are available. The computers are James Morin is a program supervisor at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. He's taking me on a tour of the youth drop-in facilities. Watch TV, they have computers. It's new and bright and painted in turquoise and citrus colors. It's a place you might want to hang around for a while. If you're gay, lesbian, trans, or even LGBT allied youth under 25, you can drop in, get a meal, a hot shower, pick up a change of clothes. Sometimes we do like spelling bees, we hold community forums. And if you're homeless, you can stay the night. Twelve emergency bunk beds are provided by the center, and ten are paid by L.A. County. They're always full. The residential facilities that we have are open to everyone, but the majority of the people who are able to who are access them are our trans because they're our most vulnerable. Because, he says, transgender and gender non-conforming youth are at the greatest risk of exploitation and violence on the streets. I am 19 years old, and my gender is that I'm a trigender. Trigender is basically a gender where you fluctuate between three genders. Mine, I float in between being pangender, which is encompassing all genders, and then female, and then Demi-female, which is female but having male characteristics as well. Rachel suffered abuse from her stepdad, and when she was 12, she was placed in foster care. A note, we're using a pseudonym to protect her identity. She had a fallout with her latest foster family over her gender identity. That landed her on the streets of Long Beach. After two weeks, she learned about housing options with the LA LGBT Center. She scored a space in the center's long-term transitional housing, which, like its emergency shelter, is at capacity. Sleeping in Long Beach by the um, Hyatt over there, 
I was jumped and people stole my bike. People would always try to get me to go into their cars and try, I guess, to sell me out because they took some of my friends out the same way. By trying to sell her out, Rachel means prostitution. One in five transgender Americans has been homeless at some point. The Center for American Progress estimates up to 40% of homeless youth are trans. But there's only one temporary shelter for trans people in the U.S. That's in San Francisco. It has 20 beds, and that's not enough to meet the demand. There's a big reason why many trans women are more likely to end up on the street than trans men or cisgender men or women. If they haven't had reassignment surgery, they're forced into male-only shelter spaces, and they don't feel safe sleeping in a room with cisgender men. Shelters will take you in regardless of your um, gender identity or sexual orientation, but most of the shelters will house you based on your authentic gender unless you've had surgery. Army vet Stephanie Page has a good job at the Veterans Administration in San Francisco. Her employers are supportive of her transition, and she's able to afford a place of her own. But she says if she didn't have a friend with a sofa before she landed on her feet, she might have ended up on the street. As a trans woman, if I went to a shelter and say, hey, I need a place to sleep, if I were able to get in, first of all, because the waiting lists are just enormous, I would be forced to house with uh, cisgender men. Um, because I've not completed my medical transition yet. Most trans women would relate to that and would be like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll, I'll sleep in my car. I'll park, you know, at a Walmart parking lot. I'll set up my tent, you know, somewhere remote away from town, whatever it is I have to do, because I would feel safer doing that than being housed in a large room with, you know, 10 beds with, with nine men staring at me from all directions. You know, no, no thank you. I'll pass. My name is Drian Juarez, and I am the program manager for the center's Transgender Economic Empowerment Project. Drian helps her clients find jobs by first helping them overcome a lifetime of judgment for their gender nonconformity. We get picked on if we were assigned male at birth, for example, for being too feminine, or if you were assigned female for being too masculine. And so then we start experiencing that discrimination early on that really can be traumatizing and can make it so that we grow up with social awkwardness, with fear of people. And that makes it difficult to go out and get a job, to go out and interview. So yes, you know, from the onset of, of childhood, um, the discrimination we experience sets us up for difficulty. This is something that Rachel knows well. If you were to go into the interview, you could tell because as soon as I bring that up, their faces drop. And then they stop really paying attention to what I have to say. Depending on their circumstances, Drian's clients may need to heal from the trauma of being kicked out of their family, or from incidents of violence, or from the exhaustion of trying to fit into a society that sees gender as binary. The system for helping people get economically empowered or stable is already stressed and very flawed. You know, there isn't a lot of funding. You have people who have huge caseloads. Um, and so when you've put trans on top of all of that already, uh, it seems insurmountable. And when you're talking to a case manager who's never worked with a trans person, then those cultural competency issues come into place. They start using the wrong pronoun. They use offensive language. They want to refer the trans woman, for example, to a men's shelter because in their minds, again, identity is based on genitalia. And so that's what complicates matters, that a system that's already stressed and not doing a good job, um, you know, when it comes to trans issues, does even worse. I've heard this over and over. 
There are LGBT services like the LA LGBT Center and the Center in San Francisco, and there are general services for everyone, regardless of gender or sexual orientation, but there are very few services in the U.S. exclusively for trans and gender nonconforming people, even in San Francisco. And I'm going to go back to San Francisco and I'm going to walk down the street and I'm going to see a lot of boys and girls, transgender boys and girls that are hungry, that are, that are, that are laying in sleeping bags on the sidewalk, and I don't get it. I met one trans woman with an ambitious plan to help other trans people from slipping through society's cracks. In 1985, Michelle Lael Norsworthy, then a young man, was arrested for second-degree murder for killing a man in a barroom fight. I was, uh, basically, I was a bully. I was just a vicious, tough ass. In the late 90s, prison doctors diagnosed Norsworthy with gender dysphoria. She began hormone therapy in 2000. Years later, prison doctors said she needed gender reassignment surgery due to her chemical castration from long-term hormone treatment. The state of California refused to pay for it. In April 2015, the Ninth Circuit Court ruled that the state must provide surgery. That August, Michelle was abruptly released from prison without surgery. They had a policy in place that was prejudiced or bigoted. It was against transgenders. It was written. And so it was their own bigotry that defeated them. Michelle moved into a halfway house for female drug addicts, though she's been sober for decades. She says this was the only place she felt safe that would take her. I found advocacy groups that um, claimed to be providing services, but when it came right down to it, uh, what I discovered was they were directing uh, transgender people to the same services that the government provides already to everyone. I want to create a house, a residential community, strictly for the transgender community, and I also want to get shelter status for them so I could take any transgender as they approach with that need, with uh, with a homelessness, a hunger, or, or in need of uh, direct services of any you know any supportive services that a transgender person might need, I want to be able to provide that immediately. So shelter status would do that. What we've got is we've got a social system that's set up. It's slanted against the transgender community. Michelle got her nonprofit status in the summer of 2016. For making contact, I'm Larry Buell. listening to Making Contact. Thanks to generous support from listeners like you, this program is offered for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcast, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Coming up, we'll hear from Gavin Grimm, a high schooler who made Time Magazine's 30 Most Influential Teenagers of 2016, and a report from Los Angeles on how their public school district works with transgender students and their families. Tenth grader Gavin Grimm began the 2014 school year with a request to be treated as a young man according to his authentic gender. That included access to use the boys' bathroom at Gloucester County High School in Virginia. Gavin is transgender and says he was born male with a female body. School administrators considered his request and took steps to ensure that Gavin be treated as a male student by teachers and staff. It all appeared to be going well enough until some parents and their supporters complained. 
Seven weeks into the school year, the Gloucester County School Board intervened and voted to ban any transgender student in their district from using bathrooms for their identified gender. The ACLU quickly responded by filing complaints with the Department of Justice and the Department of Education on the boys' behalf. Joshua Block is a staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union. Initially, Gavin hit the local news when he was up there all by himself um, in front of a school board meeting. Hello, everybody. And it was just him talking in a room of hostile adults. I prepared a speech today, but I think in light of the comments I've heard, it's it's better for me to speak um, without this paper. The result of that meeting was that they postponed an ultimate decision on on what to do. And um, Gavin, all by himself, was on the local news all over the place. First of all, to address the most um, pressing, the, the most recurring theme I've seen, everyone here that's spoken about me so far has referred to me as a girl. This is the first mistake, seeing as I very simply am not a girl. We know um, as a scientific fact that there is, in fact, research to support that this is in no way, shape, or form a choice. I want to address the questions, why can't I use the nurse's room? Why can't I use a separate bathroom? Why can't I use the woman's room? First of all, I did, in fact, have to use the nurse's room for the first part of the year. This was alienating. It was humiliating. And seeing as the nurse's office is in one place in a very large school, it took a lot of time away from my education. I want to also uh, address the comments that maybe I am unsafe. No, I'm not. I use the public restroom, the men's public restroom, in every public space in Gloucester County and others. I have never once had any sort of confrontation of any kind. No student at the school has ever confronted me in the restroom. No, and no adult in any venue has ever had a problem with me exercising my right to use the restroom. The adults are the only people who have been trying to restrict my rights. I've never been happier exercising my right to be who I am. I did not ask to be this way. And I, it's one of the most difficult, difficult things anyone can face. This is bullying. I've seen comments from adults, not even students, adults, talking about something that they largely have no idea about. I've seen teachers that I've had, people that I've looked up to and respected, publicly denounce me. This could be your child, your sister, your brother, your niece, your nephew. I am not the only transgender student in Gloucester County, and I deserve the rights of every other human being. I'm just a human. I'm just a boy. Please consider my rights when you make your decision. Thank you very much. The first meeting actually was put on the agenda at the very last minute. Gavin and his parents didn't even know about it. They heard through third-hand information the day of the meeting that the board was going to discuss the topic of restrooms. And so Gavin and his parents showed up. Gavin was forced to effectively out himself to the entire community as the, the transgender boy who was using the restroom. And after public comments during that meeting, the school board decided to consider the issue for a couple weeks before coming to a final decision. And they took a couple weeks and they got input from the Department of Education, from the ACLU, and from 
advocates on the other side of the issue, and they ultimately um, passed the policy that they did, which categorically barred Gavin from using any boys' restroom anywhere on school property. Gavin Grimm and the ACLU sued the Gloucester County School Board for allegedly discriminating against the teenager under Title IX and violating his civil rights. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in Gavin's favor, but the school board petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to review the decision. In October 2016, the Supreme Court said it would hear the case. It's, it's very rare to see a, a school board and in a community uh, enact an entire policy that's sort of prompted by one specific kid just using the bathroom. And what was pretty amazing was that all of the objections to Gavin using the bathroom weren't really about Gavin. They were all sorts of wild theories that if we allow him to use the bathroom, then that means that at some future point, some hypothetical you know, sexual predator could come off the street and use the girls' restroom. When in the meantime, you have a human being right in front of them who's just trying to use the bathroom and isn't causing any harm to anyone. The concoction of a hypothetical bathroom predator isn't unique to Gloucester County School Board. It's a message that's been echoed on the debate floor of state houses across the country. According to a 2016 report by the Human Rights Campaign, 20 states introduced 55 bills that would make it legal to discriminate against transgender people. Some of the bills would have limited transgender access to public spaces and programs, spaces like bathrooms, sports teams, and locker rooms. Others would have allowed for businesses and individuals to discriminate against transgender adults and children with impunity based on religious or moral beliefs. Three bills passed in Mississippi, Oklahoma, and North Carolina. So who's pitching these bills to lawmakers? It's, be, it's a conservative religious activist movements. It's Alliance Defending Freedom and Focus on the Family and the Family Research Council that for years have been framing their agenda around barring uh, gay people and same-sex couples from marrying, and they've moved on to transgender people as the next target. The policy that was written uh, by the Gloucester School Board was drafted in the first instance by this group Alliance Defending Freedom. Um, and Alliance Defending Freedom has been shopping that policy around to school districts across the country and to legislatures across the country. ACLU attorney Josh Block. The Obama administration and the Departments of Education and Justice all came out aggressively in 2016 in defense of civil rights for transgender students. Their efforts underscored Title IX, which prohibits discrimination based on sex and gender identity. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for being here. U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch and the DOJ Civil Rights Division filed lawsuits against several public entities in North Carolina, including Governor Pat McCrory and the University of North Carolina. The DOJ's action was in response to a suit filed against the agency. None of us can stand by 
when a state enters the business of legislating identity and insists that a person pretend to be something or someone that they are not, or invents a problem that does not exist as a pretext for discrimination and harassment. Back on the West Coast, the LA Unified School District has a longer history than most when it comes to addressing the needs of transgender students and their families. Reporter Lena Nozizwe looks at the role L.A. school district played in the passage of the historic School Success and Opportunity Act. The law clarified the rights of transgender students in California public schools. There are, however, some students who wonder about the effectiveness of the policies. L.A. Unified decided that it was high time that we took a very serious look at how we were supporting our transgender students. We saw that our students were having challenges at school, they were disengaged, and their academics were suffering. That's Judy Chasen, both the head cheerleader and chief implementer of the Los Angeles Unified School District's policies regarding LGBTQ and transgender students, testifying three years ago in front of the California Senate Education Committee. The topic is AB 1266, and she's explaining how LA Unified Schools came to set forth a model policy in 2005 that has been replicated around the country. The state's adaptation of LA's policy became law in 2014. What's known as the School Success and Opportunity Act reaffirmed the rights of transgender students. Our policy was both simple and profound. All students shall be able to attend school, learn, and participate in school activities, all the while having their gender identity affirmed and respected, regardless of their assigned birth sex. I am a multiracial, this transgender nonconforming femme youth of color. I am queer. I'm a queer trans person. The 2011 Youth Risk Behavior Survey found that about 11% of students attending LAUSD identified as LGBTQ, and 3,500 of those students said they were transgender. Welcome, everyone. We're going to get started in just another couple of minutes. Transgender students from the L.A. School District were among the hundreds of students who spent the day at an event called Models of Pride, on the campus of USC this past fall. The conference was created more than 20 years ago by the district's Gay and Lesbian Education Commission as a way of providing a supportive and safe place for LGBTQ students to get together and learn outside of the classroom. Spaces like don't emphasize trans people of color. Oh yeah, so, like, not at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very white-centered, you know, yeah, they're not well, really talking about, like, you know, black and brown, transgender, yeah, yeah, yeah. and gender non-conforming bodies, yeah, yeah. as they should. Between workshops, a group of students, including 18-year-old Matthias, who identifies as queer and trans, had an opportunity to grade the district's efforts when it comes to the educational experiences of trans students. While earlier this year, the Human Rights Commission, the nation's largest LGBTQ civil rights organization, singled out LAUSD as one of the leading school districts in the country when it comes to upholding the rights of transgender students, Matthias, who identifies as trans and queer, has found his experiences to be a mixed bag. I definitely have the, you know, verbal support of teachers, but when it comes to actually doing things to... Uh, uh, ease stuff on campus. Unless you can do it yourself, nothing really happens. As Matthias speaks, Sarah consistently nods in agreement. 
The 16-year-old has found some support on campus, but she also recalls the day a teacher asked students to split up by gender during class. Student said, uh, what if you're non-binary? And he was so convinced that there are no non-binary students in his class. I'm non-binary and was sitting in the front row. Uh, and he said, okay, well, if you're non-binary, stand up and raise your hand. You shouldn't be so afraid. And yeah, that was, that was said to me. But do you feel if you had gone to complain to the principal that they would have had your back? Uh, I did. I talked to uh, the head of student services, and she said that he probably didn't mean anything by it, and if I wanted to talk about it, I should take that up with him myself, and I didn't feel comfortable doing that. Mateus has found himself in similar circumstances at his high school. And while the staff was very supportive of my identity and me as a person, um, they weren't so good at actually uh, enforcing anything. Like, I was uh, physically harassed in a, uh, in a bathroom. At, at my most recent high school and uh, you know I reported it and they were very sympathetic and they definitely wanted to do something but nothing was done because other trans students at my school have uh, faced similar issues there was no you know PSAs or uh, anything put out. I think that these schools are willing to listen uh, but it relies on a lot of self-advocacy in order to get anything done and even then um, a lot of the time I feel like people think it's just like your problem, like you have to deal with this on your own, because um, you're almost as if like you're the one creating an issue. They never, they never say that you're the problem, but they kind of imply it with yes. the fact that you have to fix it yourself. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, no trans people should have to face this. Eli Ehrlich is the director of Trans Student Educational Resources, an organization she founded five years ago to ensure that school districts around the country institute supportive policies for transgender students. She's clearly aware of the burdens transgender students face after attending school in a district in Northern California, where at the age of eight, she very vocally began identifying as a girl. But she felt zero support when she shared her gender identity with her elementary school teacher. The teacher was, I mean, one of many who, um, who didn't see my identity as something that was healthy or normal or good for the educational environment. And so she and all of my elementary school teachers um, just disrespected and ignored it. As part of the inspiration behind her bringing together students from around the country this summer for the Trans Youth Leadership Summit, she sees what's missing within school districts, including LAUSD, where she believes leadership has the best intentions. LAUSD has a very comprehensive and um, helpful policy for trans students. Um, it's been around for about a decade or so without any issues whatsoever. And I think it does provide a very good model for the rest of the country for, um, for protecting trans students. But she says that's not enough. Being so involved with policy, I, um, I do have to be somewhat critical of, of how the policy itself manifests in that it won't actually protect the trans students. It just sets out guidelines. But very often we see um, teachers, faculty, and staff of different institutions um, from K-12 or college just ignoring these, these policies or bylaws and, um, and refusing um, to let trans students um, access programs and facilities with their own gender. The L.A. School District's Judy Chasen acknowledges that while the district has been ahead of the curve, slow adapters to its policies can slow progress. 
but she says the district is committed to putting out the welcome mat for all students. I, I'm not going to be naive and say that there was probably that everybody 100% of every staff and every community member was enthusiastic about these policies. But I think that when you have the top leadership of the school district making um, an affirmative message that you are setting the tone. And I believe at the bottom line is that we need to be evaluated by who we bring in, not who we keep out. That story was produced by Lena Nozizwe in Los Angeles. That wraps up this edition of Making Contact on the regulation of gender and its impact on transgender communities. To find out more about the people and organizations featured in today's program, check out our website at radioproject.org. That's also where you can download a copy of the show or get our podcast. Special thanks to this week's correspondents, Lena Nozizwe and Larry Buell. Lisa Redman is our executive director. Producers are Anita Johnson, Marie Che, and RJ Lazada. Juan Booth is digital content and community engagement manager. Sabine Blazan is our audience engagement director. And our development associate is Vera Teichholzler. I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Making Contact.